0: Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask in your presence to impress upon us uh, the truth of what it is we're here to do. Lord, that you would uh, remind us we're in your presence if the words of that song have not done so already. Lord, may we praise you for who you are and what you've promised to do for us, Lord, we uh, we want to make sure that we know that you're God and we're not. Your glory lasts forever; ours fades. So, Lord, may we do whatever is necessary to put ourselves in the position to sit at your feet today, to hear from your word, to have our lives changed by your truth. To encourage one another in Christ. To look at our world as best we can through eternal lenses. Rather than the worries of the here and now. Lord, may we take full and total advantage of the hour we have together here, but with you. And we thank you for another time to do just that. To open your word, to hear, to listen, to pray, to praise, encourage And be encouraged. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you. It always is. And uh, welcome. Uh, Same is true for those of you joining by way of of live stream. And uh, we've got a, a week ahead of us. We've just completed a week that's behind us. But so many of the things that we do around this building and on this day remains the same we're here to sing we're here to study we're here to encourage and uh, I want you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk and this is the latter part of chapter two Lord willing we will look at chapter three next week and conclude let's see what will be a four-week study through the prophecy from Habakkuk and this if you're with us this morning. Haven't been the last two weeks. That is deep in your Old Testament, right near the end, before Zephaniah, after Nahum. And uh, as we've been studying here, the, the 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 book itself is not complicated. You've got a prophet who's bothered by things that are going on in Judea. That's the two southern tribes of Israel that remain. The the ten northern tribes have already been defeated. Uh, they are scattered. And being bothered by these things, Habakkuk asks the Lord how long and why. The Lord then answers. And then he had another response um, from the Lord after another complaint. And today we get into what really is uh, the message itself that was given to Habakkuk uh, for those who had ears to hear. So let's begin reading this in verse 6. And this has to do with Babylon, by the way. The enemy that would take the place of Assyria as Israel's, or the Hebrews' worst enemy. This is what Babylon should expect at some appointed time. Verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say... Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as with the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. This is the word of the Lord. May we have ears to hear it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for five woes, charges against a sinful nation. Lord, may we have ears to hear, eyes to see, the guts to admit if a shoe fits, And Lord, the resolve to do something about it. We thank you for your word and may it speak. We've heard from so many places, from so many people. May our focus be to hear from you today. Speak and may we listen. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, again, we've spent two weeks uh, trying to understand what Habakkuk was on about. And this bad news that he was given about the Babylonians who would be be judging them. And that was on account of the sins of, of Judah. That's why Habakkuk prayed to the Lord for answers to his questions. He got bad news in response. Sins that he'd complained about were to be punished by an enemy worse than they were. But today we're going to learn where this evil nation babylon is going to get theirs too Uh, that there's no such thing as god seeing the evil of one group of people and raising up another group of people to punish that evil but then letting the evil nation that punishes the evil of a nation uh, let them go scot-free god takes sin seriously nothing is ever swept under a rug And today we learn what's in store for Babylon. And the truth is, and we'll cover this when we get to the end. It doesn't matter if it's Assyria or Babylon or Rome or the British Empire or America or any other government, nation or system or group of people. Sin will always be punished. It was promised in the Garden of Eden. And no sin ever is excused, period, full stop. So what we see here, we've just read it. The judgment is written in the form of five woe oracles. From verses 6 down through 20. And these five oracles constitute the message Habakkuk was to write down on the tablets. If you've still got that open, look at verse 2 from chapter 2. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets. So that he may run who reads it. It's not going to be complicated. But what we just read is... What was to be written on those tablets? Uh, if we recall from verse uh, or week one, where we defined that term "oracle," and I know "oracle" sounds strange. If if you were quizzed, let's say before two weeks ago, "oracle," where do we find that in the Bible or in weird fantasy movies about wizards and things like? You'd probably go with that, right? What is an oracle? Well, it's basically a prophetic proclamation. It's just a message, but a a, a very heavy message from God to be delivered to man. And that's why it's described as a burden in so many translations. It's usually not good news. I don't know when you had bad news last. I don't know when you were tasked to deliver bad news. Bad news is not a light thing, it's a heavy thing, a burdensome thing. And these are five woes. Very bad news. To a people that's not listening in the first place. So this this is definitely described as a, a burdensome prophetic utterance or pronouncement. That's an oracle. In the context of God's prophets and their prophetic ministries through the Old Testament, it means a direct message from God... We've got examples of this if you remember jehu having been told by god that ahab would die in a specific way and then that's exactly what happened that would be a good example of an oracle well then there's also uh the word woe we should define that that's an interesting word uh spelled w-o-e now we use the word woe like with an h in it um it could mean anything from uh, horses, slow down, uh, to st- not so fast, stop where you are, or that's really cool, that's amazing. We know that woe. This is a different woe. Uh, you could use the word alas, or how terrible. Uh, this is funeral language, and not the type of funeral language that you would use of your beloved that would be a good thing. This is a bad thing. This is a thing where something has been so long coming that when it happens, everyone looks in astonishment, "Whoa!" Alas, this is horrible. And what makes this interesting is this woe, this funeral language, is a, is, is a whole attitude of waiting and expecting. Alas, this is terrible. Of, uh, I mean, Put it this way. This is fully expecting and looking forward to the death and destruction and end of a horrible book. But the book's still open and you're nowhere near the end. We want this thing dead, but it's very much alive. That's kind of the... The, the, the sentiment, the emotion wrap, wrapped up in this. It also involves taunts, which is ridicule and scoffing, which is mockery. Even riddles, which are meant to be the cruelest of jokes. All of that's wrapped up beginning there in verse 6 with this group of people that's been oppressed by an oppressor. But then finally, the roles are reversed. Now at this point, and we'll come back to this at the end, you read over passages of Scripture and you want to say, is this okay to sing a song in joy over the destruction and fall of other people that includes their death, their destruction that caused our death or our destruction?" Do we teach our little ones how to sing taunt songs? (laughs) You know. um, I'm thinking of all different ways to explain this. But is this a good thing? When we read over certain songs that talk about retributive judgment. It almost sounds as if we're gloating over what's actually horrible to think of. Well. Well let's step back from it and maybe look at it from our context and the way we look at things and the way our culture and custom is to act and what's polite and what's impolite and what's hate speech and what's not hate speech uh you've got all kinds of current events you could pick out and analyze and deconstruct but would you agree that there's and i'll try to pick something from you know that everybody can understand If we pick enough of them. Do any of you enjoy those things you can find on YouTube? The category called instant karma. You know it's got somebody coming down the road who's mad. Trying to get you to roll down your window. While they gesture. You cut them off or something. And they're furious. But right about the time it looks like they're going to swerve into this car. They run off the road or hit a mailbox or something. And instantly it looks like karma settles the score. I don't believe in karma. But. It's just sometimes it's, it's funny to watch some guy try to trip somebody and he winds up falling on his rear end instead, right? There's just something about that. Or what about the whole host of movies where the bad guy gets it and everybody loves it, right? I mean, just think through the list of your favorite movies. Um I, I, probably the first time I ever felt this and then wondered if it was okay was watching the Wicked Witch of the West get that bucket of water in the face. <laughs> she scared me. I didn't want to watch the movie after the beginning. You've got to see this. This is where it goes to color. And I was a little kid, but the woman terrifies me. Well, when she gets the bucket and, and she's gone, and then to watch all the rest of her army, Hail Dorothy, the Wicked Witch is dead. Everybody's happy. Even the monkeys are happy, right? (laughs) And even when uh, Mr. Rogers had that actress on his show to show all the kids she's not that bad, she used that voice and it all came back. (laughs) Mom, I don't like it. She is a witch. I told you. (laughs) But what is it that's good about watching what's bad get punished? Uh, You could... Watching the movies with the kids, there's you know Miss Trunchable in the Matilda movie. Or uh, the White Witch from the Narnia series, who was supposed to be the figure of the devil in Lewis's allegory. That's to be punished and to be shamed. Um, Percy from the Green Mile. You know, he wound up crazy himself. There's so many more. But I think the best one, in listening through a message from another pastor that I think fondly of. When he started in, I knew what he was talking about. The movie's horribly under budget. The soundtrack was abysmal, but the story was just good. You've got this man who's bent on revenge. His father was killed when he was a child. And uh, this is not the kind of man you want your kids to grow up and act like he didn't use the proper channels of justice to find his revenge he always hung around the worst of characters but when you get to the part of the movie where he gets to use the line that he'd been practicing all of his life hello my name is Enigo Mantoya you killed my father prepare to die And when he's run through with that sword, after the guy begs and offers to give him stuff, you just want to say, this is right. The whole world is at peace now. Because this guy got his revenge. So something inside of us responds to sin and evil being punished. Right? Even though at the same time, we worry and we think we may need to check ourselves. Because at some point, possible that we could take God's business in our own hands, and we're in trouble at that point. So, we've got to be careful. But maybe that will help us in understanding what we're looking at this morning. There's something good about someone bad getting what they have coming to them. Now, all five oracles here share the common theme of divine judgment on Babylon. This is God's judgment. This is God's revenge. Let me just give you a rundown of what they each are. And uh, the first, this is verse 6 through 8. Babylon will be plundered by those it had plundered. So you got a reversal. In verses 9 through 11, their security will become unsecured. And all of these are very obvious right here in the text. Verses 12 through 14, their civilization will be replaced with devastation. Verse 15 through 17, their glory will be turned to shame. And fifth, verses 18 and twenty, nineteen 19 and 20, their idols are exposed as worthless. All of these are opposites. An idol is something most precious. Well, it's absolutely worthless. Verse 6 shifts gears from what we read in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 uh, to a rhetorical question. But this is part of the message, Right? To be written down on the stones. And it says, shall not all these, and from here on out, we'll use this, this formula. It sets up the pattern for the other woes. All these are referred to the oppressed. Whether that's Judah or any other nation. These are timeless things. Verse 6, shall not all these, the oppressed, take up their taunt against him, which is the oppressor. There's an oppressor and the oppressed. And this relationship is is the basis for this discussion from here on out. And then with these words, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, there it is, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long, loads himself up with pledges Debtors suddenly arise, then you will be spoiled. So he spoiled them, then they'll spoil him. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. It's coming back to you. Um, So the Babylonians have ruthlessly taken wealth and possessions. And this is looking into the future. They hadn't done this yet. Daniel hadn't been carted off. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hadn't been put in the fiery furnace yet, but it will. And uh, all these things that they have, these possessions they've taken, were not rightly theirs to take. But look at it in verse 7. Your debtors will suddenly arise. So like collections, the oppressed will come take what was rightfully theirs. Sometimes all this gets mixed up. Sometimes the things that were taken by people, it's generations later when when things all go back to where they came from. I thought of uh, the repo man. I used to work at a used car lot. We never did that. I'm glad because one time I thought I wanted to go on one of those trips. um, And I said something at home. Mom made sure I was never allowed to ride around with a repo man. But... Neither of these car lots I worked for were buy here, pay here. Um, ex- take that back, for most of the time. For a little short time, there was that type of thing. And uh, we subbed out the the privilege, or, or whatever you want to call it, to, within the realm of the law, go get the car that's not being paid for. Um Here's where I'm choosing not to waste any more of the sermon. I think you get the point. Um, Your debtors will arise and those awake who will make you tremble when justice comes. Um, If we read further, um, pledges are mentioned. Uh, Heap up loads of pledges. That's not a reference to like pledged donations. They didn't have a, a donation drive. How much will you pledge? No. This is collateralized debt. Where poorer people say would put up their coat. And the, the Jews had rules against this. You can't take advantage of somebody this way. That's what this is referring to. And really none of this is any different than stuff that goes on these days. Where uh, extremely high interest rates. And inflexible uh, terms absolutely take advantage of of financially vulnerable people. Um, And it should never be. That's what is being referred to here. Now when you get to verse 8, the tables turn with an ominous because. This is what you've done in verse 6 and 7. because of that, in verse 8, it's coming right back. It's not instant karma, it's the God of the universe being good on his promise to punish sin and with the punishment of death. Um, Verse 9 begins the second woe where Babylon is charged with using ill-gotten gain to build security against the threat of disaster. Uh, The picture is that of a uh, look at, if you see it, a nest feathered with the stolen goods of others positioned high off the ground away from the reach of threat. It's quite a a vivid picture. Um, Any of you ever heard of the race to drink Hitler's wine? It's interesting. Let me read you some of it. As so World War II drew to a close, and Adolf Hitler committed suicide, American French armed forces closed in on the Fuhrer's compound in the Bavarian Alps. The American 3rd Infantry Division and the French 2nd Armored Division raced to the resort town, let me see if I can get this right, uh, berk Esgaden. i will see if that's right, somebody can tell me if it's wrong. The Alpine village was home to the vacation villas belonging to high-ranking Nazi officials, Hitler's residence, the Berghof, and the Eagle's Nest. Have you heard of the Eagle's Nest? That that was his place perched on the edge of a mountain, which was furthest and at the top. Interestingly enough, the 101st Airborne Division Screaming Eagles, that's what they were named, are one of the best-known companies in the United States Army. They fought in the Battle of the Bulge, played a pivotal role in D-Day by disabling a battery of four German heavy guns. They also had been assigned to occupy Garden, the home of Hitler's famous eagle's nest. As Nazis rolled over Europe, they carted all sorts of war spoils back. Fine art, jewelry, gold, currency, and lots of wine, and this is where most of it was kept. To the average GI, this was simply the juiciest looting opportunity in all of Europe. Upon entering the eagle's nest, the screaming eagles found destroyed paintings, evening gowns, medical equipment, and Hitler's wine cellar. Photographs and newsreels showed members of the 101st Airborne Division enjoying the view... And most importantly, drinking Hitler's private collection of cognac and fine wine. The soldier's drinking binge is considered one of the most expensive of all time. Best part, in the eagle's nest, was Adolf Hitler's 50th birthday present. Revenge is a dish best served overlooking the hills of Bavaria from a dead dictator's birthday home, drinking his finest spirits and wine. I chose to read these verses after that story. Listen to it. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. That last verse there, the stone will cry out, the beam from the woodwork respond. That, in this context, would be the materials carried off from other places to build one's own house. This is about as ancient of our way of saying, if these walls could talk. If that art could talk. If those bottles of wine could talk. The French actually used... Medical stretchers to haul all that down to their trucks where they emptied their canteens and filled it up with $1,000 bottled wine. This goes for any nation. God settles scores. He takes sin seriously. Verse 12. This is describing civilization is turned to devastation. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, founds a city on iniquity, Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be judged or be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As if to say, those that think they're going to place a flag over the contents of everything in the earth. Now, the only thing that's going to cover the earth is the glory and knowledge of the Lord to the extent that the waters cover the sea. So when a civilization is built on a foundation of violence and injustice, it's already sowed the seeds for its eventual destruction. It's Proverbs 14 that says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And it seems as if the cadence of these things are taking up speed. But when he gets to... Verse 15, it almost seems as if uh, things step down uh, in content down to a place that really just makes one feel uncomfortable. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Pour out your wrath and make them drunk to gaze at their nakedness. It talks of shame instead of glory. And then the language: drink yourself. Uh, The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. You're making others drink. You'll be made to drink. You like drinking? Drink up. Shame will come upon your glory. Then talking about violence done in Lebanon. Don't know exactly what that means, but Lebanon was known to be the place where lumber was procured, and that's okay. But this was stolen. Probably left in ruins. Destruction of the beast that terrified them, so even animals uh, were destroyed in the wake of this conquest. And then a second time, you see this for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all men who dwell in them. That's why you're punished. And if this sounds rough, it's because it is. Uh, The question for the scholars is is this to be interpreted figuratively? Or literally. Both likely. Uh, Yes it's describing a a debauchery. But it's describing on a wholesale. What it's like to humiliate other nations. To pillage and ravage other nations as a group. So their glory turns to shame. Uh, With each one of these. uh, You understand more of the woe. Alas. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Babylon in its ambitions made the nations to drink from the metaphorical cup of its anger. And here the oppressor systematically is stripped away of anything and everything of value. Uh, kind of makes you think again back to the Third Reich. And the processing of these people for their gold in their teeth. and And, and everything that they could use. For whatever purpose. The metaphor of nakedness indicates shame. Humiliation and destitution is brought on by the onslaught. And if it looks like we're tracking. Hey this sounds like America. You get to this point and you go. I don't know if we're that far yet. But I don't know that anyone would say. Well we're not headed in that direction at all. And like the ending of the book of Jonah. uh, God notices even the abuse of the animals and the trees in this description. So according to Habakkuk, the Babylonian Empire would eventually be judged by the Lord for its brutal attempt at world domination. That much is clear so far. And even though God would use Babylon as the tool to discipline the the Judeans, it was only for the redemptive purging of evil from His people, not ultimately to destroy them, because we know there was a remnant. So just as Assyria fell... So Babylon would fall, same for Rome, same for the Third Reich, same for America, if something doesn't change. All man's glory is turned to shame in contrast to the glory of God, which is forever and ever. Verse 18, almost seems like he switches subjects again. And this is the the only section where woe isn't what begins the actual description. It's like he's going to set up this woe uh, with a preface to underline the absurdity as if it's more absurd than anything that's been said yet. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, question mark. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes a speechless idol. Then we get to the woe. Woe. To him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, Arise. And then the question, my favorite one, can this teach? What do you learn from an an idol, a wooden idol, a metal, a fancy idol, a big idol, small idol, any idol? What do you learn from it? What what has it taught you? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. So he's being almost as if it sounds uh, kind of sarcastic. It's gold, it's silver, but it has no breath in it. It is dead. I used to find a strange pleasure, me and my brother, in taunting our sister, reminding her that her baby dolls weren't real. You act like that's real. You talk to it. It's not hearing you. You Mom would, would jump in if we said, your baby dolls are dead. You know, kids say cruel things, right? But... To us, it was an absurdity, even make-believe, you know. It was mean, should have been corrected. This is not that at all. This is true that these people had worshipped these things. Last week, we're looking at them worshipping their fishing nets because it made them rich and eat very well. Uh, Isaiah 44 uh, Isaiah really tees off on this as well, the idea of idols. Let me just read it to you. This is verse 10 of Isaiah 44, uh, if you want to write this down. And I'm skipping through some of the verses. Uh, You can look at it later if you'd wish. But who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works with his strong arm. He becomes hungry... His strength fails. He drinks no water. Carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. And lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man means it's cut down and it's burned he takes a part of it and warms himself he kindles a fire and bakes bread also he makes a god and worships it he makes an idol and falls down before it half of it is burned in the fire over that half he eats meat he roasts and is satisfied also he warms himself and says i'm warm i've seen the fire the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Verse 19. No one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it is burned in the fire and half of it I made a God out of. I'd say he's probably, I don't know, red in the face. but, I say, but, but This is brilliant. But he says nobody gets this. Nobody sees the absolute absurdity of using the same substance to burn in a fire and worship as deity. But that's the idol. And then at the end here, verse 20 the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before the Lord. So the Lord is not deaf and mute and powerless like idol gods. This is meant to be the contrast. Of the universe. The difference between the God who sits in his holy temple. And a little image made out of wood. That was created by God. In the first place. He's enthroned in his temple reigning over the universe as we speak. So we could spend some time trying to say. Okay. Where would God's prophet. Should there be one. Uh, tee off on us. What 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 is the absurdity that we spend our time and our money and our youth on which can't teach us anything and is useless you could talk about our careers which basically is supposed to be a paycheck at what point would it be a good trade near retirement to look back and have given the best of everything you had and lost the best of everything god blessed you with in order to make a paycheck bigger than the guy you didn't like to start with that, that You could say, no one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, that's dumb. Or entertainment. We make gods out of these celebrities that have absolutely nothing worth the massive amounts of attention that we put on them. We just like to see what they're doing because they're an absolute train wreck and we like watching. That's ridiculous. Uh, education's the same way. I'm reading a fascinating book called The Defining uh, Decade. It has to do with 20-somethings in America who the world thinks it's smart to tell them, now, don't do anything in your 20s. You don't need to be serious in your dating. You don't need to be serious in your your schooling or serious in looking for a job. You can do that when you're 30-something. But then, most of the folks sitting on or laying on the couch with counselors trying to detangle the mess in their 30s are wondering where are my kids, where's my career, where's my identity and saying no so I could keep all my options open and spending 10 years on just me. I'm a mess. It, it, it's rough. Does anybody have any consideration? Anybody paying attention here? This is not a good trade. Why would we do such a thing? So yeah, this shoe fits. We're smart enough to be able to see the correlation. Look again at 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. And it's against the picture of Babylon bowing down to dumb idols that can't speak or teach them anything. And you can just insert what we just said about America, whose attention somewhere else other than the God that created them. But in this posture, the message to be inscribed on these tablets, the final word is, let the, all the earth keep silence. I think the most humble form of worship may be to just keep your mouth shut before someone... Who rules everything. Who holds all wisdom. All power. All righteous. Kind of like Job at the end of his story. Put his hand on his mouth. There's nothing to say. So let's take a shot at a conclusion here. Um, this is one of those passages where it's easy enough to understand what's going on here. but it, it, and, and it might even be easy enough to find some implications. I think we've done As much, but it's still one of those passages that leaves you a little uneasy or on edge. What what do we do with this? I could have everyone raise their hands, poll the audience this morning. How many of you are pumped to go to work tomorrow and share with your colleagues what you learned in church today? That God takes sin seriously, that plunderers will be plundered, that man's glory will be reversed into shame. Uh, that, that, That God does not in any way, shape, or circumstance excuse sin. It will be paid for on His Word by His promise. And God's people are singing taunt songs when it actually is meted out. I don't know that I ever want to be associated with a group of christians who sing taunt songs that kind of gets us in a lot of trouble doesn't it that that's not socially acceptable now even though it seems the whole world is embroiled in their own taunt songs um we live in the age of can't say that while everybody's saying everything else so is this the passage that we use as our uh, credentials to sing taunt songs no are we the ones commissioned to exact or call out or shame sinful activity not necessarily all of these woes are given to Habakkuk this is the message the oracle from the Lord not from Habakkuk it's given to us through the word of Habakkuk which was given to him by the Lord so vengeance is still the Lord's he'll still repay not necessarily our position I think probably the better attitude is the woe. Alas. These things are so bad. Silence is probably the best thing to do. While the Lord does what He's promised He's going to do. So to taunt, and ridicule, and shame, that's the Lord's business. And we learn that Sin is cosmic treason, so sin against a God is punished on a cosmic level. But here's the point I want to make. This was very helpful when I read over it. There's nothing said about Jesus or His cross in the book of Habakkuk. I mean, we get a pretty good finger pointing to the New Testament with verse 4 of chapter 2. The just shall live by faith. That was last week. As far as the specifics of Jesus and the cross, they're not here yet. Habakkuk wouldn't have understood these things. So, what business does Habakkuk have with the gospel? Even though we don't learn of Jesus and his cross, don't you think that Habakkuk has done a fine job of helping us understand what to do with Jesus and his cross? What use Jesus and his cross is to the world Who's under the wrath of God that we've learned from this. This has made sin exceedingly sinful. So how much more precious is the Lamb of God who will take it away? That's how these themes are tied together. And if you don't believe that this is how sin works. Because Habakkuk 2 teaches us that sin deserves mockery. It deserves shame. It deserves punishment. It deserves all these things, right? If it's as awful as it is, God is righteous in doing all that He does. And in our hearts, if it's just watching a movie and enjoying when the bad guy gets it, that's uncovering what we know instinctively in our hearts, that sin is shameful. Habakkuk has taught us this. And if we don't believe that that's how it works that sin is sinful on a cosmic level, then the cross is never going to make sense. Because the cross was as horrible as any of these things that we're reading here. And all of that was poured out as punishment on the Son of God in our place. So basically, what what I'm trying to say is that these woes that we're reading about, thinking that they're for other people, actually apply to all of us. And it is these woes that Jesus took on himself. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid our faces from him, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I don't know if you've ever thought of that component before. But Jesus was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was hated and despised. Think of the whole cancel culture now. And for what little people are absolutely steamrolled for. Take their job. Take their benefits. Get rid of them. That's nothing compared to what Jesus went through. All the shame of sin was placed on him, which makes it even more stark the contrast, having none of it being deserved. That makes sense. This guy never did any of those things that we're looking at here. He never heaped up to himself things that were not his own. He never got drunk on his own power and made people drink the consequences of it. That's us. He never did any of it. But all the shame that we attached to that and all the taunt songs we're happy to sing were sang over a Jewish carpenter on his way to a humiliating death. And nobody cared. It seems, except for a handful of men. His people, the ones He created were the ones that said His blood be on us and our children. Habakkuk lets you look at that from an angle. I don't know that you can look at it from other places in the Scripture quite the same way. He took our shame and our ridicule, which are attached to sin for a purpose. So I thought even though our world understands That sin is shameful and what sin deserves. Just check Twitter on your ride home. You'll know that plenty of people have plenty to say about what they think is wrong. Our culture has no problem with knowing that wrong deserves punishment. It's that our culture has no idea. And has no understanding of the Christ who came to take it away. And that is precisely The reason for our confusion, our troubles, our unrest, our racism, our hatred, all of it. You want to know what's wrong with our culture. We know the difference between right and wrong, but we have no clue how to make the distinction. That's what's wrong with us. So it's just my opinion against that guy's opinion, against her's opinion... And it's all a mess. And until we know that the light of the world came to take away the sin of the world. To give us his own righteousness. We'll never have rest and peace. It's the type of message that the world should see, understand and be silenced over. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the world be silent. We're going to sing as we close this out, be still my soul. And then because of the nature of this message, uh, I'm going to come back and read us a benediction um, from a completely and totally different temperament and perspective. And uh, after which I'll pray. And if you'll... Keep your seat. The ushers will come and dismiss us by row, and you can be on your way. But this is Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away father in heaven we thank you for our portion in your word today and taking our corner from your word you be god and we'll be quiet in your holy name amen